and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today's episode is the first of a two-parter from the Oliver Zangwill Centre in Cambridgeshire, which is a neuro-rehabilitation centre for people with a brain injury. Today's episode is focused on memory problems after a cardiac arrest, and sitting with me today is Professor Barbara Wilson, who is a clinical neuropsychologist. So welcome, Barbara, and thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. First of all, can you tell me what a clinical neuropsychologist is and why you're an expert in memory? Well, a clinical neuropsychologist, first of all, you have to have a degree in psychology. Then you have to do a clinical training which is three years, and then you specialise in neuropsychology. And we say clinical neuropsychologists because some neuropsychologists are academic and do more theoretical work, but we actually work with patients. And I specialise in people with non-progressive brain injury. So I don't see people with um, dementia or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, anything like that. The four main groups I deal with are traumatic brain injury, uh, younger stroke patients, people with encephalitis and people with anoxic brain damage. So the few cardiac arrest survivors that I would have seen would fit into that anoxic brain damage group, which simply means shortage of oxygen to the brain for a period of time. And that will have occurred because the heart has stopped when we've gone into cardiac arrest. Yeah, arrest. your heart's pumping the blood round to your brain and the brain needs more oxygen than other organs. And in the brain are the hippocampal areas, which are inside the, the temporal lobes there. And the hippocampal areas, which are crucially involved in memory, need more oxygen than other parts of the brain. That's why memory is so often affected if people have any kind of um, shortage of oxygen for any length of time. How long are we talking about? Well, you've told me about cardiac arrest survivors who have been out for minutes and they're all okay. But we're always taught that after three minutes, the damage can occur. So I don't think we know for sure how long that is. And if somebody's having CPR, for example, at least some oxygen's getting to their brain, so they may not be so badly affected. But if oxygen's completely cut off, then the memory, memory areas are very likely to be affected quite soon, after a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Some of the listeners will know you from the, the Not Alone event that you kindly attended recently. Mm -hmm. um, but could you just sort of give me a brief um, overview of your career? Yes, well, when I first qualified as a clinical psychologist, I worked with people with learning disabilities. They were children with severe behaviour problems, severe self-injury and learning disability. But I knew I wanted to go into neuro. My heart was in neuro. So after two years, I got a job at a neuro rehabilitation centre in Oxford and I knew the very first day there that I would stay in brain injury rehabilitation for the rest of my career. I knew I'd found the right place for me and I have stayed in it for 40, 43 years now. And when I first went to Rivermead Rehabilitation Centre in Oxford, the, the things I'd been competent with, with the learning disabled kids, like language or dressing skills, other people were doing. But there was nobody doing memory rehab work. So I started to do more and more of that. And I think that's why I became well known in memory rehab. It's because I was filling a gap at the time. And um, it, I became very interested in it. And then started to connect with other people doing similar work and more theoretical people like Alan Badley. And we combined a theory and clinical practice so Alan badly knew all about the theoretical side, but he wasn't used to helping patients. And I, that's my main reason for being, doing this job, is to make the lives of survivors of brain injury better. So it sort of gradually grew from that. Mm -hmm. So you, you've been doing memory rehab for many... 40-odd years. 40-odd years, so yeah. you're 
you are an expert as far as I'm concerned and, and many others are concerned. But as you say, you haven't seen that many cardiac arrest survivors. No. Most of those with anoxic brain damage that I see have either attempted suicide with carbon monoxide poisoning or they've had a, a heart attack, some of them, and I know there's a difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. Some have had a, a pulmonary arrest, so a lung problem. Some have had an embolus, so a clot going up to the brain. And very, very few I've seen have a cardiac arrest. Why would that be? Well, I guess they're just not referred. I mean, I see anybody that gets referred to me, whatever the diagnosis is. I was taught as a clinical psychology trainee that you have to see every patient that walks through the door and do something to make his or her life better. You can't always cure them, but you can always make their lives a bit better. So I've never... Well, apart from the fact that I don't see people now with progressive conditions, and that's simply because of where I work. I've always worked in a rehab centre that takes non-progressive brain injuries. So they don't get referred. And then the one or two that I have seen, not at the Oliver Zangwill Centre, but at another hospital, have had really very, very severe brain injuries. And they've typically had a cardiac arrest through a drug overdose. And they're quite different from people like you. They're not walking and talking. They typically have a disorder of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's my main experience of cardiac arrest. But I think if you're looking at anoxic damage in general, they wouldn't be so very different from some of the other people with anoxic brain damage. So bearing in mind what you said earlier, someone only needs to be down for three minutes or so to sustain a typical hypoxic or anoxic brain injury. And when I did a survey in my group of how an average time of how long people were down, and I think more than 50% of them were down for more than 15 minutes. So you would think a large portion of the people in the group have sustained uh, a brain injury. I would have thought so that you know, I'm nervous about sounding an expert in this area because I think that's where you might need a medical person. But it seems to me that that's likely to happen if they've been down for 15 minutes and they're actually not breathing and their brain's being starved of oxygen. And e the memory. Even if they're getting some CPR. Well, if they're getting CPR, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because you don't know how much oxygen then is getting through. You don't. I know it's not as efficient as the heart itself, but there's some oxygen going through, so that would protect them to some extent. But we could say there's probably a, a potential cause for concern there, something that yes, perhaps I think need, they would need to be assessed or looked they at. They should be checked out, yeah. But um, at, at my understanding is that at the moment that most people don't get uh, an assessment because they're possibly seen as as a good outcome because they can walk, walk and, and talk. talk well i must say one of the most brain damaged people i've ever worked with was walking and talking now she had a hypoxic event through an anesthetic accident not a cardiac arrest but she could walk and talk and was extremely brain damaged so walking and talking isn't a good way to measure the severity of any damage to the brain mm-hmm so we're talking about memory issues. So can you sum up to, to the lay person, what, what is memory? What, what are we talking about? Well, a simple definition, memory is the ability to take in, store and retrieve information. That's a simple definition I often give to patients and relatives. But the typical person needing help with memory problems, their immediate memory is typically okay, normal or nearly normal. If you measure that by a forward digit span, for example, so you give them some numbers and they have to say them back to you immediately in the right order. And the typical response there is seven plus or minus two. So between five and nine people, most people, even severely amnesic people can do that. So their immediate memory is OK. Their delayed memory is impaired. They have problems learning new information, problems learning if there's any kind of distraction. They typically forget things they've been told. They forget um, to take medication. 
They forget people's names. They have problems with the date, maybe. But they don't forget their name. They don't forget their date of birth. They might forget how old they are, but not when they were born. And that's quite different from the psychogenic memory impairment that you might see on some of the films or TV programs where people wake up and don't know who they are. I mean, that never happens with anoxic brain damage. You don't see that. You only see that with there's some kind of psychiatric problem as well. You mentioned there about waking up. I, I remember, and I read about it many times from in the group, where someone wakes up because they've quite often been put into an induced coma mm -hmm. and they have the, the memory of a goldfish. I asked the same questions over and over again because it wasn't going, or it was going in, but not being retained. Yeah. Uh, would that be medication or the... Well, there might be medications that, that affect that, but there again, you'd have to ask a medical person. But it's more likely to be this... Your hippocampal areas are not working properly. Your immediate memory is still okay. So if somebody tells you the answer, you can hold on to it for a few seconds and then it's gone. That's why you're asking the same question over and over again. And with somebody with the amnesic syndrome, severely, um, severely memory impaired, that they're always going to be like that. But with people like yourself, you've shown this recovery, so you, you don't do that anymore. You don't ask the same question over and over again. I imagine you don't anyway. <laughs> you don't to me. <laughs> when you, you, you talk about memory and amnesiac, are they different? And what, what is the definition of amnesia? Yeah, well, the amnesic syndrome, there are characteristics for that. And it can happen after severe anoxic damage. That's one of the causes. But people with the severe amnesic syndrome, they would have normal or nearly normal immediate memory, problems after a delay or distraction, difficulty retaining, learning most new things. And, but that, that's it forever. Now, somebody with a memory problem, they, certainly in the early days, they may show a lot of recovery, as I think you did. But of the other thing about the amnesic syndrome is their other cognitive skills are okay. So they don't have problems with language, with reading, with perceiving things. Whereas somebody with a more widespread brain damage and more widespread problems, they may have memory plus these other things. So I tend to distinguish between the amnesic syndrome, which is a pure memory loss that's permanent, and memory impairment, which may go along with other cognitive problems, other intellectual type problems. Could I just jump back? When, when we you, you said that the brain, in particular, the hippocampus area gets affected, what, how does it get affected? When you, we're in a hot, hypoxic state, what, what is actually Well, it's just happening? that they need a particular lot of oxygen, you see. So when there's an oxygen deprivation to the brain, the hippocampal areas are going to be um, damaged first. So is that the, the cells are dying? Yeah, the cells are dying. The nerve connections are not working properly. And if it's if it's temporary, you know, because of some kind of shock or bruising effect, then that will show a gradual recovery. If they're actually killed off, dead forever, then you're probably always going to have this memory problem. But people still can compensate. However severe the memory loss, people do compensate. They, they use compensatory aids. They find other ways to do things. They get round the problem in some way. And that a lot of memory rehab is helping people compensate. Okay. I was just trying to establish what, what for if, or you sort of ex explained that, you know, if, if stuff's bruised or temporarily damaged. Then yeah, you it can might, go into you, a kind of shock. Would, would that be down to the amount of, or lack of oxygen, the length of time? So. Yeah, I think any kind of insult to the brain those areas just don't work for a bit. And then when you do wake up, anything that's happened very recently is not being stored, is not being processed in the hippocampal areas. Do I get so angry with these TV programs? You know, somebody gets banged on the head, they're out for five minutes, ten minutes, and they wake up and they remember everything. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in real life. If you're out for five, ten minutes and you're not processing the things that happened immediately prior to the accident, 
because it's not getting stored and processed in your hippocampal areas properly. One, if I just go to, to my um, own experience and what I see in the, in the group is when I've woken up or the the I've got memory, or I, I get my memory back to a certain degree, but there is that period I see a lot of people who don't remember their event or the time leading up to it, and that can be hours yes days or sometimes weeks or even longer absolutely yeah what what's going on well that's called retrograde amnesia so retrograde amnesia is a loss of memory prior to the accident or insult or illness and anterograde is the memory afterwards so almost everybody that's got a memory problem has a period of retrograde amnesia and as you said it can be very short And it can be very long. I mean, some people I've known who've had encephalitis, for example, can have a retrograde amnesic period of decades, 10, 20, 30 years. Some people, it's just a few minutes. But there's almost always that period of retrograde amnesia. And it's because once you've... The last few minutes aren't being processed I mean, in order to process it properly, you have to be conscious. And if you're unconscious, you're not processing those things. But if you've lost something for days or weeks, would you not have processed processed that in the, at that time? Yeah, but that also depends on the severity of the brain damage. I mean, it's not just the hippocampal areas, it's the connections between those and other parts of the brain. So one guy I can think of who's had uh, who's got about a 30 year retrograde amnesia he's got both his hippocampal areas have been severely damaged but so have other bits of his brain so it's partly the location of the damage and partly the severity of the damage you say about the location if you've got someone I can imagine if someone's having a, a traumatic brain injury then they can be hit from anywhere and yeah. different parts of the brain can be affected but with a hypoxic brain injury does does it follow in a normal sequence well you can no you can get brain damage anywhere and um, one of my papers is on a group of people with hypoxic brain damage and what their manifestations of their difficulties were and memory is the commonest but you can get people with damage further back in the brain and they have a lot of perceptual problems problems recognizing what they see or interpreting what they see you can get people with damage further towards the front when they can have a personality change or have problems with planning and organization and then you can have people with very widespread hypoxic damage or the whole of the brain's been damaged and they may have a disorder of consciousness or be very very severely impaired I mean, there's one rare condition called Balint syndrome where people can't localise in space and they misreach. And uh, that's bilateral, so both sides of the brain and further back than the hippocampal areas. So you can get a lot of different manifestations of the hypoxic damage. It's partly due to when they're resuscitated. I mean, the ones I'm talking about have typically attempted suicide. And it's partly how long they've been out unconscious before they're resuscitated and if it's a long time and they've had a lot of anoxic damage then they're very very impaired but the most people like you and the other ones I met at the standalone it's obviously been a fairly mild anoxic episode because you're all walking around coping with your lives and doing normal things but you still feel many of you feel you have some problems with memory and with fatigue as i said that they are the sort of probably most two common uh, sequelae or problems after the cardiac arrest that people report and are they associated with sort of uh, the areas of the brain that are most commonly affected well as i said the anoxic damage in the hippocampal areas would explain the memory problems but any kind of brain injury whatever the cause is likely to result in fatigue and it's one of the big issues now coming forward in brain injury rehab it never used to be considered 40 years ago but in the past few years fatigue's seen as um, something we have to deal with in rehabilitation and as you know donna here is our expert in fatigue management but i think the brain just 
anything that affects it is going to result in people feeling very tired. It's similarly, they typically can't take alcohol as well. If you've had a traumatic brain injury, we say to them, don't drink because they're going to get drunk much more quickly or the alcohol is going to affect them much more quickly and they're nearly all likely to suffer fatigue. You mentioned that the the memory uh, that we lose prior to the event is called retrograde. Is that lost and gone for good or is there a potential that your mind is protecting you from the event that you've gone through? Because I know... I know it's traumatic for anyone um, involved in resuscitating someone, but when you're, I know when I was immediately resuscitated, I was very agitated and I was aggressive and people are trying to stick things in you and intubate you and all sorts of things. And that can be pretty nasty, I think, for your brain to process. So could it be possible that I have got that memory of it, but I'm just not allowed to access it. I'd be very sceptical of that argument. I'm not saying it would never happen, but it's not what we see typically here. The period of retrograde amnesia may well shrink as you get better. You're probably always going to have a minute or two where you're not remembering immediately prior to the episode. So it may shrink a bit, but... And, you know, people have tried to use hypnosis to recover these memories. And it it only works if there's a psychiatric reason for this. It's not an organic, if it's an organic memory problem, I would be very sceptical that you're trying to protect yourself. I think you just don't genuinely, you don't remember those minutes, hours, whatever before. I've tried to sort of search into my brain and but and find these memories. And I... I, I, I glimpsed little bits not of my actual event but the days before but I've seen photos and people have talked about those and I don't know if they're memories that have just been placed in my yeah. my my brain since the event they're not the real memory as yeah. it were that's I know that's difficult it's this kind of rehearsal effect you don't know to what extent it's because you've been told and to what extent they're really there but the other thing I should have said is there are typically these islands of memory within that retrograde amnesic period there's little bits that may stick out and you said you get these odd glimpses I think that's quite typical okay called islands of memory within you know we had one guy I remember who crashed his car and his girlfriend sitting next to him was killed and he could remember, he was unconscious for most of the time, but he got little tiny bits of memory stuck there of, of immediately before the accident. So so I think that's what your glimpses were, maybe these islands of memory. Do, do we know what's going on in the brain there? Is it just bits of the neurons or whatever that didn't get damaged? I think you're trying to process what you've heard and bits are getting processed but most of it is not done properly some of the other symptoms that i i experienced post arrest or post event was one with well typically remembering what people were saying to me so i someone would explain something to me and then two minutes later i would have forgotten what that was is that just basic what what's going on there is that what's failing in me well, I think that's a typical memory problem. Um, I'm assuming you understood the words at the time. It wasn't a language problem. You understood what they were saying at the time, but you couldn't hold on to it. I expect so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my guess is it was that. If it was a language problem, you wouldn't actually understand what they were saying. If it's a memory problem, you've understood it, but you've not retained it. And I just and that is very typical of memory-impaired people. Forgot what people have said to them, forgot what they're supposed to be doing. So it sounds just one of those kind of typical problems. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned language. and I did have problems with language in terms of several areas. One was where I would speak and then forget what I was actually saying. So I would have to try and keep my sentences short. Otherwise, I'd just totally lose track of what I was talking about. And the second one, which is I think is more common in people, is I guess... It, sort of term it missing word syndrome where you word talk finding at, problem. yeah word finding problem yeah. and I, I used to think if, if you've got something and it's on the tip of your tongue you sort of go through your your memories and maybe 
something would jog it and you could come up with it but it'd be like going to a room opening the door and instead of there nothing being in there there was no room there that's how I used to describe it I've got no reference point or anything for actually remembering what this word is is that common and what what's going on yeah there? I think word finding is is certainly common um again my experience isn't with cardiac arrest but with say traumatic brain injury TBI they typically have word finding problems often that improves over time but it's certainly one of the typical things. Um, forgetting what they're doing, keeping track, losing track of where they are, what this in the middle of a task, for example. All those are very common you see in uh, somebody coming for rehabilitation. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was something I, I always used to be uh, totally distracted by any little thing. I'd start off doing something and then if I needed to get something else for that thing I'll go and get it and then be distracted and go off and do something else so I'll, I'll get to the end of the day with about 20 different things that had started but didn't finish yeah. Yeah. that that's common is it yeah that's common and you know we've had one of our patients um she she'd set off to feed the bird or get um tablets and she'd stop by the window and have to count the cars but that was more a frontal lobe problem, you know, the frontal lobes involved in planning and organising. And and she she got so distracted, it interfered with everything in her life. But we successfully treated her. So, mm-hmm. But you're not describing problems that are rare. There's, it's just that typically with somebody like yourself anyway, you'd expect those to improve over time. And it seems as if they did. Mm-hmm. Well, and just going back to the language thing, the, the, the third aspect of the language was the processing of language in reading and written form. So I, I struggled for quite a few years before I could actually read a book because I, if I read a passage, maybe a, a paragraph of I don't know, 100 words or whatever, I would forget what I'd just read by the end of that passage. So I would have to read it again and again and again until it actually sort of sunk in. And I found that very frustrating. So I, I sort of kept myself to just reading very short articles and things like that. But I found, like you say, it did improve. And after about two years, I remember distinctly on being on holiday and being elated that I had actually managed to read a book. Good. <laughs> but that, that that's common, is it? Yeah. It's, and, you know, it could be the memory. It could be an attentional thing. It could be a number of things causing that. You know, people with attention problems have that kind of difficulty. So it, people it, it, with frontal lobe problems can't keep on track and lose track of where they are. So when you have particular problems with language, like the missing words and being ab- unable to process language, it, uh, I've, I don't know if I'm right, but is, is it called aphasia or dysphasia? Yeah, Which, dysphasia is a general term for... Uh, aphasia means total lack of language and dysphasia means problems with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's called. But I think the, the tip of the tongue phenomenon of finding the right word you want when you want it is a bit different. I don't, don't think that sounds quite like a dysphasia problem. I think that would be more widespread and general. It sounds as if you had just... I mean... Uh, you were never seen by a speech and language therapist, I guess. No. Well, you see, that's what I do. I say, look, I'm a bit worried about this. Go, go and see the speech and language therapist. In a good rehab service, that's what you should do. You should have somebody looking at your neuropsychologist looking at your general cognitive functions, speech and language therapist for your language things, your OT for your uh, coping with everyday activities. If you've got any physical problems, you want the physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. But it sounds you 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 lot miss out on that, don't you? I, I think we do, yes. And I don't think it's just me. I think there's many people in the group who who come out and, as I said, walking and talking in, to all intents purposes, perhaps to someone who's not learned in that particular sort of area, that someone who walks and talks that they are okay. Whereas they, and if there's, I think I've mentioned it on the on the podcast before the cpc scale is it the cerebral performance category and there's only five of them and five is dead four is in a vegetative state three is severely uh, impaired two is you're impaired but you can lead a life but you need a bit of help and one is classed as good 
but you can still have impairments with That's that. That's much too... They're far too broad, those categories, far yeah. too broad. But I think a lot of us are classed as one, but it's acknowledged that you can have impairments. And I think we're one seen as a good outcome because you're alive now. I mean, compared to when you, the state you were in when you're in cardiac arrest, yes, it is a good outcome, but it's not taking into the whole picture, really, of what the the neurological function, the cognitive function, and ultimately the quality of your life after the Absolutely, yeah. No, Um, I'd agree with that. And it's a bit like a Glasgow outcome scale for people with a traumatic brain injury. The categories are far too broad. There's all these, within any one of those categories, there's all these subtle gradations. And if you're not looking for it, you miss it. You have to assess it and measure it, or you miss these things. Mm Mm-hmm. So as well as the actual the cardiac arrest, what other factors could influence someone's ability to remember things? Well, if they're very anxious, anxiety can affect memory. Alcohol can certainly affect it. People get worse as they get older. It could be an atten- more not paying attention rather than memory, and that's where a neuropsychologist would try to tease that out. Of course, you may have both things. You may have memory problem and attentional problems. So, you know, if it's a mood issue, if it's anxiety or depression or something like that, then there are psychologists that deal with those um, specific problems. And, I mean, the, the, certainly the people we see at the Oliver Zangwill Centre have typically got the organic problems resulting from the brain damage plus mood issues. They're anxious, depressed lose their social skills, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever. And we try to deal with all of them together. So I think it's, you know, you can have... uh, Certainly you might be worried about whether you're going to have another cardiac arrest or other things that you... You said you were worried about something at the beginning, but it wasn't having another cardiac arrest. It was... No, it's the fact that I'd had a, an ICD Oh, implanted. that's right. The ICD, you might be worried about those issues. So certainly anxiety can get in the way as well as the anoxic damage. Mm-hmm. What about medications? Yeah, well, I'm not an expert on medication because psychologists don't prescribe medications. And most, I know they can sometimes make things worse, uh, but it's typically not particularly memory. It's, you know, if you give somebody with a TBI too much medication, you can hinder their recovery. But you'd need to... Sp- I mean, this is where Tom Keeble would be good at this, I think, the medication side of it. But the the only medication we see a lot of are those who are likely to have seizures and they have anti-epileptic seizures. And some of those do affect their cognitive functioning in general. I don't know about memory in particular, but it's not really a question for me, that one. So you mentioned about seeing, seeing people like yourself and how do people who maybe have been discharged from the hospital without seeing any specialists while they were in hospital. Can they get to see people like you around the country? Is it, or is this a one-off, this centre? Well, in some ways this is a one-off, but of course neuropsychologists aren't. I mean, typically you have to get your GP to refer, and the GPs don't know. You have to have a specific person in mind. And so if you lived in Ely or Cambridge, for example, say, I want to be seen at the Oliver Zangwill Centre, please refer me. You know, some, I know the Encephalitis Society used to have their own clinical neuropsychologist to see, but she she doesn't, they don't have that anymore, but they used to have their own person to see people. So it might be that the cardiac arrest group could employ somebody to just do these neuropsych assessments. And in a way, it feels unfair to me because the, you know, the families or the people with loud voices and knowledge. It's not so much money, it's knowing the right questions to ask and how to push. They, they're they the ones who get seen for rehab. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that's justice. Everybody should have it, whatever, however good or not so good they are at arguing. But I know the ones that get through here, their families have made a fuss, the families keep pushing, they go to the politicians. So do, do you see people from all around the country here then? Yes, we 
we do, but it's harder to get funding from a lot. Some health authorities are good at funding and recognise the need for rehab. And some say things like, I can get three hip replacements done for that. I don't want to fund rehab. And they don't see it as important. When I started off at Rivermead in the 1970s, that was a time of the principle of free referral. So anybody could be referred to any National Health Authority anywhere. And we typically had a third of people from Oxford, a third of people from the region, and a third of people from elsewhere in the country. And we had three social workers at that rehab centre. You never see a social worker in brain injury rehab now. And it, the only serious problem we have is getting funding. That's our main, main problem. And it's true for, you know, lots of centres are closing. We're in danger of being closed because of the funding issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm all for justice and equality and giving people what they need when they need it. So if there was someone on the another part of the country, they could, they need to put a good case to their GP and they there is a possibility they could yeah. be seen. Yes, the... uh, it's usually easier to get the funding for an assessment. We typically start off here with a two-day assessment. And in that two days, you get some neuropsych assessments, you get an assessment by the speech and language, by the OT. You'd get sort of, you know, can you cope in the community? You go shopping. Can you, if, if this is needed, it's not always needed. You get mood, your mood assessed. And at the end of the two days, we would feedback whether we thought you should come on our program, whether we thought you should have some other service, whether you should go to your community OT, for example. We would make those recommendations at the end of the two days. Now, that's when the problems start, because if we think you should come to our program here, and that's a two-way decision, we have to think we can help and you have to want to come, um, then the problems with funding starts. We can usually, not always, but usually get the two-day assessment funded by the health authority where you live. But the full programme, that is really difficult. And you sometimes we do it in a one day. So I've seen people just for a neuropsych assessment for an afternoon, and I don't get paid, but the, the centre charges something like £350 an afternoon mm -hmm. so there is a sort of condensed version of it yeah there is and more and more that's having to go it's having to happen because of the funding issues so and, and we're doing more and more bespoke work so the full program it would be six weeks of four days a week and 12 weeks of two days a week we call that the integration phase the intensive phase and the integration phase and in the intervention, um, integration phase, we're trying to get people back to their own environments. And so they come here for two days a week and then they're trying a job or going to further education or being more independent, whatever. But there's less of that now and more bespoke work where people might just come for their mood issues or their memory problems or fatigue management, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that that is a possibility too. But perhaps the, the people who come on these sort of experiences or rehabilitation programs are bec are the ones who are more seriously affected. And so maybe for people like yeah. myself and other members yeah. of the group, where perhaps you don't need that full, you need you need to certain be assessed and need a bit of understanding of what you're going through to know that maybe some of it will heal itself, as it were. But maybe you need to be guided on on some of the things to help you uh, uh, adapt to it and maybe some things that you can help to improve it. Yeah, that, that's a possibility. I mean, the people that come here are typically not very severely impaired. The other hospital I used to work at, the Raphael, that we took in, people there. This is where the cardiac arrest through drug overdoses I saw. The ones that come here... They're, they're the, the walking wounded, but they have some issues. Some more. We've had people with severe amnesic syndrome, but mo mostly they've got milder memory problems, milder mood problems. But the bespoke people, the ones that just come on their own, not in, not part of a group, part of a cohort, 
they might be more like the ones you've said, just need a bit of help with this or that. Okay, assuming at the moment that most people can't get to a place like this or maybe not even see a neuropsychologist in their local area, what can they do or what can what can be done to sort of help their situation? Are there any sort of practical things that you can say to people to help? Well, OTs are usually pretty good and you might be able to get a community OT, occupational, OT? occupational therapist. And there's more of this, there's still too few of them, but there's more of them than there are neuropsychologists. So you might be able to get one of those to help with some of the practical problems. There are various books. We've got a brain injury workbook that we've produced here, which is mostly for professionals. And it, it's each chapter focuses on something different, like mood, communication, memory, attention, and it's a theoretical bit to each chapter, but at the end of the chapter, there's worksheets that you can work through. Now, although it's intended for professionals that are not part of the team and seeing people at home, I would imagine that some patients could use that as well. And there are other online things, like this Narinda Kapoor that I mentioned earlier. He's done a few little books, or self-help books, for people with memory problems or other kinds of problems. So there are things like that. I think you just have to make a big fuss to your local health authority that they should be funding more rehab and services. What about things like strategies for sort of just helping it, helping people cope? What, what could you say about that? Well, there will be some of these self-help books that do that, I think. If people don't want to or can't get access to to these books, have you got any tips that you could give people to to help them with their, their memory issues or is it just a case of it's going to get better to a certain degree and then you know, how, and also how, how long will someone get better over a period of time? What What is that period of time? And you know, it, what can they do to help themselves? Well, it's difficult to just give tips cold like that because I mean I my way of dealing with say what is it you want to do that you can't do or you know what's and they might say well I, I have problems learning or studying or remembering names or something like that so I would set that as the goal and, and focus on that problem mm-hmm. I like to just see the individual and work it out there could you just name some of the strategies or or the techniques that you use to help these well, people? Well, I would certainly... That... Compensations. Um, I mean, if you've got a memory problem, there's basically three main strategies, if you like. One's improving learning, and there are various ways to help people learn information more effectively. The main one is helping people compensate. You know, people might write things down. Well, you can have more organised ways to do that. You can have reminding systems that we send out, reminders to you. So new learning, compensation, and then organising the environment, like always putting things in the same place. Have your string around your glasses. Don't put your keys anywhere. Put your keys always in the same place. Um, Organise the environment in some way that it makes it easier for you not to forget things. And I think a lot of those are in that. Headway book, that or Narinda's book on managing memory problems. They're tiny little books. They're not hard to digest things. And there's one I did with a colleague on um, managing memory problems. We mostly wrote it for people with more severe memory problems, but there are tips in that. So, you know, be kind to yourself. Pace yourself. Do things in bite-sized chunks. Don't take on too much. Learn one thing at a time, not three things at a time. Those kinds of things, if they're the kind of strategies you meant. Mm -hmm. Like with the new learning, for example, trial and error learning is not a good thing. Simple repetition is not good on its own. It's better to try to avoid mistakes being made while you're learning something new. So make sure you're you can't you know you've got the right answer first and get that several times before you try and do it on your own. Try and avoid mistakes. That's a good learning strategy for improving learning. Not this experiential learning by learning with trial and error. 
You can do that if you've got a good memory, but you can't do that so well if you've got a bad memory because you can't remember your mistakes. In order to benefit from your mistakes, you have to remember them. And if you can't remember them, you can't benefit from them. It's that kind of thing. But I don't really like saying this without seeing the person and going through it with them and doing it all properly. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just thinking of sort of things, that practical things that people can do. And some of the things that you see in the press or the media or in articles or things um, that look promising, as it were, that I've seen are things that where people get told to learn a new skill, in particular something like a musical instrument that can help or doing exercise outside to stimulate your to stimulate you basically in all areas. And one that I think where the jury is out on is these yeah, brain training Brain games. training, yeah. Well, I get you, a bit you... cross with that. <laughs> I get cross with brain training because the evidence isn't there. What typically happens in, in any exercise like that, you get better at the task you're practising, but it doesn't generalise to memory in general. So... I don't think you're going to do much harm, but I don't. If you're trying to make your memory in general better, I don't think that's going to work. The evidence suggests it doesn't work. Now, the other things you said about exercise, of course, it's good to do exercise. And one acronym I've I use all the time to try and protect yourself from Alzheimer's disease is is called Seeds. And the first S is have a social life. The first E is education, and that could be anything, learning a foreign language, learning a musical instrument, doing a crossword. The next E is exercise, so socialisation, education, exercise. The D is diet, and the last S is sleep. And if you do those five things, you're going to have a healthier life I don't think you're going to improve your memory itself, but it's not going to be a bad thing to do. And you can have a, if you do all those five things, you're going to have a reasonable, reasonably healthy life and less likely to go downhill with, say, Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. With the with the diet thing, I have seen, or uh, I've read some sort of medical studies that certain foods can help with uh, memory retention. Yes, I've heard that too, and I don't know the evidence for that. I mean, I've heard, for example, blueberries are supposed to give you a good memory. Well, I have blueberries every day. My memory's not bad, but my husband's isn't good, and he has them too. So I think it's, you know, it may help a bit. I don't really know. You need to ask somebody else that one, I think. Mm -hmm. And what was the last one you said on your seeds? I forgot. Let me socialising, education... Exercise, diet, and sleep. Sleep, yes, and I think I've, I've heard that is a big one as well yeah. for memory as well. Yeah, and I, I, I've seen several studies where people have it really helps long term retention of memory. Yeah, where they they did a, a study of people who were students who were cramming um, for an exam, whereas students who did aggregated over the the period that they were trying the same amount of time that they the crammed students did but just did it over a longer period of time and they found that they increased by 10 or 15 percent their overall scores Mm. so that obviously helps you remember information well there's two things there the second one you said it's that distributed practice is better than mass practice so doing the little and often rule if you're trying to learn something new the little and often it's better than the same amount of time altogether, like your grammars. And the other thing about that, about the sleep, is that if you're trying to remember something, it's better to do it just and then have a sleep so nothing else is getting in the way and you're more likely to remember it than when you've woken up than if you do it earlier in the day when you then have a lot of activities going on after that, you're going to forget more. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, there's all these little things, I suppose, that will help too. I think I've just been more focused on specific problems and setting specific goals. Mm -hmm. So I think we're just about coming to the end of our conversation now. Just You mentioned them before. What other resources or books that people could look at? Well, the memory one, there's uh, Narinda Kapoor, 
K-A-P-U-R, his book on, it's something like Managing Your Memory. There's our Brain Injury Workbook, which has a chapter on memory and a chapter on all sorts of other things, including a fatigue chapter, I think, by Donna in there. And that's called the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Workbook. And in that, it's got lots of um, worksheets to work through, exercises to do at the end of each chapter on different aspects, different problems. And the headway one I've mentioned, that's quite old now. I did that a long while ago. And there's one I did with um, a colleague called Linda Clare. It's called Coping with Memory Problems. And that's mostly done for people with um, more severe memory problems. But the, the ones with less severe might get some ideas from it too. Mm-hmm. The, the headway one, I know you said it was uh, a little bit out of date. Would that would that still be applicable? Absolutely, yeah. Things things like that don't change very much. The research into why they work, or not why they work, do they work? The research is more up to date, but the actual ideas probably haven't dated very much. No, because mm-hmm. that's probably the most accessible to be. Because I think they can just download it from the the Headway site. Okay, good. And for free. And if you're not aware, Headway is the sort of the brain injury charity, or is a great resource for lots of information yeah. regarding problems after a brain acquired brain injury or even a traumatic brain injury yeah it's it started off with traumatic brain injury but it's actually more general kind of brain damage now i think mm-hmm. which someone from a, a cardiac arrest yeah. could could easily be Fed experiencing without yeah. sort of being diagnosed as such mm. okay well i'd just like to say thank you very much for this enlightening and um, informative hour about memory issues and Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, Please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.